About 20 years ago, uh, we were on a cruise, and we were on one of those excursions that you do, it's one of the ports in the Caribbean, and we decided to go snorkeling. And so we were snorkeling, and there's a bunch of boats, and there's a bunch of people in the water, and kind of one of the parts of my personality is if I see everybody going this way, I'm like, well, I'm going to go the other way. Uh, that doesn't always work well. But I was like, I kind of went on my own, and I'm following all these fish, you know, because in the middle of the Caribbean, when you're snorkeling and you're paddling around, there's like so many beautiful fish, all these beautiful colors and all these different shapes and sizes. And so I'm just like following fish after fish after fish after fish. And I'm like endlessly entertained by all of the options that are for all of the different fish that I can like explore and see and encounter. And so I'm snorkeling around and it's, I lose track of time, right? So I'm like, I should probably come up and just kind of see where I am in relationship to everybody else. Well, I come up and I realize that I am the only person still in the water and everybody is on boats and most of the boats are leaving. And so immediately my brain goes to that place, you know, where like all of the old Jaws movies that I've seen and like trying to mine information about how I'm going to survive the inevitable shark attack because I'm like the lone person in the water, right? But this is, I think, just a simil, like a similarity to the place that we find ourselves in the world. We have an infinite number of choices and options available to us. And so we search and chase and search and chase and search and chase. And then the next thing we know, we find that we're way away from the boats, all on our own, just out to sea. And this leaves us in a place that keeps us constantly anxious and untethered and unsettled because we have nothing that anchors us. We have nothing that grounds us. There's no consistency. There's no reliability. There's no stability in life. And the problem with this is we look around the world and everybody else is doing the same thing. And so it's kind of hard to evaluate, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? And the rate in which the world is speeding up and the increasing number of options and interests that we have available to us. If we don't change and do something different, it's only going to get worse. And it's on that happy note that this is what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, right, in this sermon series. We're talking about this lost virtue of commitment. And how necessary it is in the world that we live in that's filled with infinite choice. And in week one, we kind of set up the problem why, about how so many choices feel good and they have an aspect to them that are good. But there's a shadow side that leaves us, kind of like I just described, untethered and anxious and ungrounded. And then last week, we talked about kind of some of the mechanisms around how you actually make commitments and today we're going to kind of introduce a concept that we're going to be in for the next couple of weeks. Because the way that we are navigating the world today is using current information that's constantly changing and constantly encouraging us to live the way that everybody else is living. And so I think it's worth introducing ancient wisdom because I think it's in the pivot away from ancient wisdom that we can kind of work against the grain and find a life that is connected 
that's filled with meaning and purpose, that's not just chasing after the next new novel thing, but that actually has substance and fruit and depth and richness that doesn't come from like novelty and choice and constantly toggling between all of the options available. You know, it's that experience of being on Netflix and spending an hour and a half trying to decide what to watch as opposed to committing to a movie. And even if it wasn't the best movie or the perfect movie, at least you have the satisfaction and the experience of watching something, right? This is what we're after, but like on a more substantive and significant level. And to do it, I want to introduce a man named uh, Benedict who became St. Benedict. Benedict uh, lived in the 5th and 6th century, and what Benedict experienced was the decline and the fall of the Roman Empire. Um, There's this really strange thing that's happening in social media right now about how most men, all they think about is the decline of the Roman Empire, which I don't understand at all. If you are lost, I'm lost too, and if you've never heard of this, ask somebody that looks younger than you. They'll explain it to you. I'm convinced this isn't true. Anyway, Benedict was consumed and focused on the fall of the Roman Empire because he was living during the fall of the Roman Empire. And what he noticed during the decline and the fall of the Roman Empire was why the empire was falling. It was in a place without governance. It was in a place that the citizens were being left to follow their whims wherever it may take them. They're, you know, they're kind of at the tail end of an unbelievable age of decadence that presented all of these options and all of these choices that they could follow and explore to their heart's content. And where does it leave them? It leaves them in the same place we've been talking about, this place that is unanchored and untethered, filled with anxiety and desperate for purpose and meaning. And so in response to kind of the decay and the decline of the Roman Empire that Benedict observed... He did what many people did during that time period is they just opted out. So he goes kind of into the hillside of Italy and lives in a cave for two years, as one does, right? And so in this process of living in a cave, he kind of has this spiritual awakening and decides that he's going to start a monastery. He kind of lives as a hermit, but then decides that Actually, the individual isolated hermitage life isn't anchored in Christianity because there's no community. There's no connection and relationship to other people. And so he begins to form these monasteries. And this was not the first time that anybody had formed monasteries, but there was something about Benedict's monasteries that was markedly different. He developed what was called a rule of life. It was a way that what you believed manifested into practice and informed all of your daily life, all of your actions, your thoughts, your habits. It informed everything. And in particular, he required that anyone who wanted to be a monk in his monastery had to make three vows. And these are the three vows that we are going to be talking about over the next couple weeks. Not that I desire all of us to be monks or to live in caves, although the hillside in Italy doesn't sound bad. But I do think that there is ancient wisdom in these three vows because we have lost the art of making commitments. We don't know how to do this well. And I think there is something for us to learn and discover in these three vows that Benedict offers. So here we go. 
the three vows of St. Benedict, the vow of stability, the vow of obedience, and the vow of conversion of life. Now, we're going to unpack the vow of obedience next week, and then we'll end two weeks from now on the vow of conversion of life. And so today we are talking all about the vow of stability. Now, this is what Benedict required of monks who made the vow of stability, that they committed to remain at that specific monastery for the rest of their lives or until the abbot, kind of the father of the monastery, gave permission or direction for them to go to a different monastery. You were committing to stay at that monastery and work in that monastery and live in that monastery for the rest of your lives unless you got told to go somewhere else and then you were at that monastery for the rest of your lives. Think about how unheard of that would be today. That level of commitment, that level of consistency that violates all of the things that feel like values to us, right? There's no autonomy. There's no personal freedom. There's no ability to choose for ourselves. It doesn't take into consideration my needs and my interests and what would feel good to me, right? It doesn't allow space for any of those things. It says, no, you are making a commitment to be here in this monastery for the rest of your life. That feels like, like prison to us, right? It feels cruel and unjust and unfair. And yet these were voluntary commitments that Benedict was asking these monks to make. Now, I think this is what's fascinating is uh, this has survived. This is not something that died out, you know, in the 7th or 8th century. There are Benedictine monks who still make these vows. And... One monk in particular, Thomas Merton, maybe you've heard his name, he wrote about the significance and what happens when someone makes this type of commitment, makes this vow of stability. This is what he said about it. You or me, one of y'all choose. <laughs> All right. By making a vow of stability, the monk renounces the vain hope of wandering off to find a perfect monastery. By making a vow of stability, the monk renounces the vain hope of wandering off to find a perfect monastery. Now, we can just substitute the word monastery for anything that we might commit to, right? We get married by making a vow of stability. The husband or wife renounces the vain hope of wandering off to find a perfect spouse. By making a vow of stability, the employer or the employee renounces the vain hope of wandering off to find a perfect job or a perfect team or a perfect situation. This is the illusion and the insidious temptation of social media because everybody's life looks so good on social media, right? Because we've got all of the ways that we just present the highlights. This is why... Parents, as long as you can wait, wait to let your kids have access to social media. I've just made a bunch of enemies in the room this morning with all of the kids who are here because this is the danger and this is the temptation. They look around and they say, everybody else's life is perfect but mine. Let me go in search of something that will make my life perfect. This is the, 
kind of the story of the prodigal son, right? Give me my share of the inheritance and I'm going to go off and find what's actually meaningful, valuable, and makes my life perfect. But Thomas Merton says, listen, when you make the vow of stability, you are relinquishing any type of attention or feeding of that desire to go in search of something more perfect. We live in a world of optimization. We want to make everything 1% better all the time, right? And so we're constantly scanning for, what, a better circumstance, a better situation, a better job, a better car, a better home, a better partner, better children, whatever. You can't trade them in, but, you know, you're always looking for ways to make things just a little bit better because we long for this thing that feels more perfect than what we currently have. Because what we currently have, we're exposed to and we're... We see all of the bumps and the flaws and the cracks and the failures and the imperfections in what we have. And all we see is the veneer of everything that's around us, just the facade, just the outside appearance. And so we're like, oh, that one. If I could get to that, then, right? We have all of these if-thens. And then some of them come true and we realize that they're just fallacies right? And so then we create a new if-then, and then a new if-then. If I could have that, or if I could be with them, or if I could, if I could, if I, then, 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 then. And they all leave us empty. And so this is why the vow of stability is significant to monks. And it should be significant to us too, because it dissuades us from the allure and the temptation of a perfect monastery. He goes on to say, this implies a deep act of faith, Recognizing that it does not matter where we are or whom we live with. This is specifically for the context of the monks. That there is not a perfect monastery. All monasteries are more or less ordinary. And its ordinariness is one of its greatest blessings. Its ordinariness is one of its greatest blessings. Now I know some of you, you hate this, right? You're like, ugh, the last thing I want is an ordinary life. I don't want an ordinary marriage. I don't want an ordinary job. I don't want an ordinary family. I don't want to be ordinary. My mom told me my whole life I was extraordinary. This feels like it's in violation of everything that I know to be true. I am unique and special and different. There's nobody like me. And my life's got a match, right? But what happens when you commit to something significant and you say, I'm going to stay here, when you dedicate yourself to it, something changes and happens in your commitment to where you are. There is a, an effect that happens that begins to sanctify both you and the thing that you're committing to. Because you have to work through all of the imperfections. And it starts to work on your imperfections. Unfortunately, we all have them, despite how extraordinary your mama says you are. This is, this is why I think scripture holds up marriage as this kind of covenant relationship that mirrors how God loves us. Why? Because anybody who's in a marriage knows that it is like the biggest mirror you can ever stare into in your whole life. Committing to love someone day in and day out, even when they don't seem that lovable and you don't seem that lovable, but your commitment to it. 
reveals all of the gross stuff about you that you got to work on and about them for them that they have to work on. It just happens to be coincidence. Today's my one-year anniversary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was told that I had to mention that. No, I'm just kidding. She doesn't do that. But this last year has been such a revelation of all of the ways that God is not finished with me. Some of that I've come to on my own conclusion. Some of that has been uh, shared with me, that there's still a lot for God to do with me and in me and in my life. But it makes you better. It makes you more complete as a person. Not just the, the process of legally being married, but the engagement and the commitment to a marriage. This is, doesn't just happen in marriage. It happens in other places, in other ways too, right? In deep friendships, people who will be honest with you and hold you accountable and then point out the ways that you aren't living up to who you've said that you are or jobs that are honest with you and invite the best out of you and then hold you accountable when you don't meet those expectations. Because when we have those hard moments, it's easy to want to just jump and pivot and toggle and switch to the next thing. But when you stay committed to it, it begins to do something in you. It begins to change you from the inside out. And this desire to want to kind of move to the next more perfect thing, St. Benedict had a name for monks who were always kind of hopping from one to the next to the next. He called them gyrovagues. Gyrovagues. It's this strange name, but he used it to talk about somebody who would fit in very well in our current society. Somebody who never stayed that long, just dipped their toe in, and then when things got hard or things got difficult or the illusion or the veneer facade faded away, they moved on to the next thing. St. Benedict knew better. He said, listen, if you want transformation in your life, if you want your interior life to fully actualize all that God has for you, you have to stay committed. Because he knew something that has been true since the beginning of time about the human heart is that we're fickle and our feelings change and they subside. And so the only way to counteract our nature is to make deep and lasting commitments that even when we get a little squirmy, we stay put because the commitment anchors us and roots us in place. This is what's true about that scripture that Shannon shared that we use to guide us as a church. It comes from Jeremiah 17, and Jeremiah is writing to a group of people, and he's presenting two options of how they can live their life. One is this deeply rooted life, and this is what he says about it. He said, blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Now, this sense of trust, this is the depth and the significance of this, this word trust. Imagine if you're hanging off a cliff and I reach my hand out and you have to let go of the branch or the cliff edge that you're holding on to and grab my hand so that I can pull you up. That's, that's what that word trust means in this context. You stake your whole life on it. It's not just this intellectual thing that you assent to, the I believe in Jesus, like that he existed. No, 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 I orient my whole life around him. I trust with everything that I have. He says, so blessed are those who trust in the Lord, 
He says, they shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the stream. Shall not fear when the heat comes and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought, it is not anxious. It does not look around for a better place to be planted. It does not jump ship. It does not find a more perfect situation. And also, it never ceases to bear fruit. We think this is the perfect picture of the Christian life. People who are rooted in something that causes them to be impervious to the shifting and changing conditions around them. In the good times and the bad times, when the relationships struggle, when the relationships are successful, when life is hard and when it hurts and when it feels lonely and confusing, there's something that we are rooted in that's greater than ourselves, which means our leaves stay green. We don't get anxious about what's happening around us and we never cease to bear fruit that's why this church is called the grove because we want to be a community of fruit producing trees and you call a bunch of trees that produce fruit a grove that's it if you've ever wondered that's the answer that's why we're called the grove and he contrasts that with this image in this picture so if that's what it looks like when you trust in god with your whole life when you make this vow of stability to commit to a place, to commit to a community of faith and to a people, that's what it looks like. Here's the other picture. We'll work this out for next week. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans. They just look around and trust whatever it is that they can see. Who rely solely on their own strength I got it. I don't need any help. I'm fine. I'm good. And turn their hearts away from the Lord. These are the options. If you think you can navigate life by yourself without any guidance, without any direction, without anything larger than yourself forming, shaping, and instructing you, then go on. But this is what's going to happen. It says that they are like a withered shrub in the desert. A withered shrub in the desert. Juxtapose that with a tree planted by a stream with green leaves and abundant fruit all year round. A withered shrub in the desert with no hope for the future. They live rootless and aimless in a land where nothing grows. I would contend that for most of the world right now, for those in our society and culture, this is how people are living. Rootless and aimless, grasping, searching, desperate for something that will feed them, that will nourish them. This is why we constantly toggle between celebrity or popular person that seems to have a podcast to whoever we can find as guidance and instruction for life. This is particularly true about young men. They are constantly looking for an Andrew Tate or a Joe Rogan or somebody that they can follow because they need something to ground themselves in because they feel lost and disconnected without any sense of purpose, aimless and rootless. 
And the way out is the one thing we don't want to do. It's to make a commitment to stay one place. Even when it gets hard. Even when we think we see better options around us. It's like these pots back here. We want this, right? We want to bloom. We want to grow and have abundance in our life. But we want to stay in the dirt long enough for our roots to begin to spread. We plant a little seed and we get impatient waiting for it to grow. Maybe we got a little shoot that comes out and then we see a different pot we want to jump to. And so we jump to the next pot, right? And then that doesn't seem to be getting us anywhere and so we jump to the next pot. And then we jump to the next pot. And then we jump to the next one or the next person or the next relationship or the next job or the next interest or the next hobby that's going to define me as a person. We keep switching and switching and switching because we think eventually just being in the pot, it's going to make magic happen. It has far less to do about the pot than it does about our commitment to stay in it. And so the question is, will you stick around long enough to allow roots to grow? To allow the natural evolution of time to affect you and have an effect upon you? If you want to bloom, you've got to be willing to be planted. And that feels really hard for a lot of us. We're not interested in being planted. We're not interested in the dirtiness that happens, the effect that the dirt and soil has upon us, the process of change that we have to undergo because it's hard and it's slow and it's tedious and it's painful. But this is the way that we get formed. Some of you, maybe you've had this experience with churches. You walk in and you're like, let me sing some songs, a little clap, listen to the sermon. Do you feel anything? I didn't feel anything. Let's go to the next place. You weren't there long enough. You got to stick around. You got to be willing to commit. Now, I do need to caveat, I don't think all pots are created equal. Not just anywhere that you try to stay planted will nurture you and allow you to bloom and to grow like this. It takes the right combination of soil, of moisture, of sunlight to produce effect and change in our lives. Like this pot is just filled with a bunch of mulch, right? That doesn't work. Ugh, that's right. It doesn't work. This pot, a bunch of rocks. Not going to work. It doesn't matter how long you stay in some of these environments. They're not the environments for you because they can't produce the thing that you're after. If you want depth, if you want to be grounded in this life, if you want lasting meaning and significance and purpose, it will only come through deep commitment. I think to your faith, to a community of faith, into close and lasting relationships. You won't find it anywhere else. It doesn't mean that your involvement or participation in other things is bad. I need to caveat that. I got like 75 emails last week extolling the virtues of sports because they felt like I attacked you. 
Sports aren't bad. They're just not the ultimate thing. Not every circumstance and environment and situation is going to lead to your growth. And so you got to commit to the ones that will, to the people that you have your best interest in heart, that will hold you accountable, that will call you out when you're not living into your integrity, and that will help mold you and shape you to becoming a person of faith. This is why when people want to become a member of the church, we talk about this vow and this commitment to being a member here. The words that we use are, will you commit to support the church with your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness? We think all five are necessary because that's what anchors you in a community of faith. That's what connects you relationally to the people around you. This is why we have environments for people of every age and of every season and stage of life here at the church. Because we want to try to get you in a place where you can be planted and where you can grow and bloom. But we can only do so much. Like We can offer it, but you've got to commit. And so for some of you, you're like, this feels like a hard sell. Good. I think, it, I think it matters. I think there's no better place that you can be committed to than the local church. And if this isn't your local church, that's okay. But you need to be committed to a local church because that's how God begins to work in your life. That's the mechanism through which this happens. And that's why the local church matters so much. That's why this local church matters for those of us in this community who call this church home. This is why I'm not ashamed or embarrassed to ask for your generosity because the work that we do here matters. You're not going to find this anywhere else in the world in the way that it shapes and forms our souls. There are clubs and programs that you can be involved in, but they don't matter like the church matters. And so here's what I'm asking you to do. Whatever your level of stability and commitment Turn it a notch. Tap in. Dig in. And get planted. Because I promise you, God will work in your life and create more abundance and fruit and flowers than you would ever imagine. And it's the only way it's going to happen. That's my commitment to you. I hope that you'll commit in response to making your faith, tangible priority on a regular, consistent basis. Let me close with some prayer. We'll invite the band to come back out and lead us in one last song. Gracious Lord, the choice is continually presented to us. We can plant ourselves in you We can plant ourselves in the world. One leads to abundance and significance and purpose. And the other leaves us aimless and rootless and without hope. God, help us to make the better choice. To take a vow of stability and commit to grow in you. 
We pray this in your name. Amen.